pandemic, lockdown, economic crisis? Have we forgotten about climate change? Today in the We Love Renewables podcast with Environment Day in mind, we ask ourselves, are renewables the answer to COVID-19? Hello, my name is Pilar Orti, and in this We Love Renewables podcast, we will discuss the role of renewable energy in the current context. The pandemic has put many economies in check, but despite the fragile situation, we are betting on renewables to help us emerge from both the social and economic crisis and to help us respond to climate change. However, are countries around the world prepared to maintain their commitment to the environment despite their financial situation? Will it be possible to achieve our net zero goal, becoming carbon neutral by 2050, or will COVID-19 reduce everyone's commitments to just a few words and deeds? Is the green recovery possible? To answer these questions and more, today we have a set of four experts. Dr. Sam Gartner, who is the Head of Climate Change and Sustainability at Scottish Power, where he is driving forward a program of work designed to ensure Scottish Power plays its full part in tackling climate change. Welcome, Sam. Hello. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for having me. We also have Marta Martinez, Head of Studies at Iberdrola's Energy Policies and Climate Change Division, where she's the focal point for several international organizations like the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition, IRENA Coalition for Action and Business at OECD. Her focus is climate and energy perspective and analysis of impact. Welcome, Marta. Hello. Hello, everybody. Pleasure to be here. I'd also like to introduce Elizabeth Press, Director of Planning and Program Support at the International Renewable Energy Agency, IRENA, where, amongst other things, she leads IRENA's work program strategy and climate work. Good to have you here, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be with all of you. And our fourth guest is Angela Francis, Chief Advisor, Economics and Economic Development of the WWF UK Worldwide Fund for Nature, where she works across climate, food and biodiversity as well as leading on trade and industrial policy for a green transition. Welcome, Angela. Thank you, Pilar. I'm excited to join this conversation. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much to all of you for accepting our invitation to this roundtable. I am very much looking forward to your contributions and points of view. But to begin with, let's check in where we are now. Do you think that the pandemic has impacted the implementation of the green recovery uh, and all the international agreements around the climate uh, crisis? And do you think that COVID-19 has made us forget about climate change? So those two questions. Marta, how about we start with you? What do you think? Well, I think that quite on the contrary, I think that this pandemic should not make us forget about climate change. After the immediate shock, I think this, it's been a shock for everybody and worldwide, uh, where we would all you know, go to the short-term action, which I think is very important. Look at the sanitary crisis have relief for those most vulnerable um, families and, and companies that need some help and support, immediate support after that's been tackled or is being tackled. I think that we all think broadly, you know, and, and we take a step back. And I think that climate change, like when it comes back into the, into the picture and this pandemic, in my opinion, it has made us realize how vulnerable our economic and our, our infrastructure systems are. And that it should make us realize also that we need to do things a different way and make sure that in the recovery now that um, we're defining, all countries are defining, that um, climate uh, sustainability goals and our long-term goals, which is the trajectory we have to be 
at the center. No, there's a strong movement now, um, and this message is coming from the World Bank. It's coming from the IMF. It's coming from um, private sector organizations, from NGOs. I think that that idea of climate being at the center of, of this crisis, or, or being a very important piece of this crisis, and and, and getting ready for the future, I think that's a, a key key piece of the puzzle there. Thank you very much. And Sam, uh, what's your reply to what Marta said? Well, um, I absolutely agree with the what Marta was saying. Um, I just wanted to build on it by reminding ourselves of the context into which this pandemic has occurred, and that's into a climate crisis. So we started this year with a lot of people talking about the need for a decade of delivery. We have 10 years in which we have to basically cut our emissions by half if we're to be on track for tackling climate change. And we should acknowledge one of the reasons why climate change is still uh, so prominent in the public consciousness is a large part due to the huge numbers of youth voices that were raised throughout 2019 and 2018 that have elevated climate change into the public consciousness. And I think we're seeing the impact of that now. It sustains itself through this crisis to the point where Marta was saying it is now very prominent in the conversations that are happening across the world. Um, and just today in the UK, we've seen over 200 businesses write to the prime minister, really pushing for a clean, green recovery uh, to the COVID crisis. Uh, we've seen polling, public polling being done that has shown that the, the public's concern and support for action on climate change remains very strong. So I don't think uh, the, uh, the COVID crisis, huge and transformative that it is, has diminished in any way the... Um, the kind of commitment that we see to the climate change agenda, I do think it's had an immediate impact. And we can see that in the fact that the, the COP26, which was due to take place in Glasgow this year, has had to be delayed. So there are inevitable consequences to the ability of governments to respond in the short term. But it's, it is encouraging to see the prominence with which the conversation is focused around a green recovery. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that will have substance and will actually translate into action on the ground. Um, Elizabeth, do you have anything to add or anything to contrast to uh, Sam's view? I, I think I have a little bit of a nuanced um, view on this because I, I agree with both Marta and Sam that, that, that it really is very encouraging and, and good to hear the, um, uh, the, the, the link between the, the, the clean recovery and, uh, and uh, what is happening right now. But, you know, sometimes I, I'm also concerned that we're talking to the same people all the time so that they're talking to our friends and, uh, and people who agree with us. And when you venture, so there are two things. When you venture outside of our immediate group of uh, climate uh, supporters, you know, it becomes a little bit more complicated. I'm sure we all have, uh, um, you know, environments in which we, in, in which these, these things are not as prominent or as, uh, as uh, obvious as, as they are to us. And secondly, you know, from our, from Irina's viewpoint, because we're a global institution, it kind of depends who you talk to, you know, because we had a meeting with Africa, for instance, and, you know, if people are uh, grappling with their daily issues, they don't really, um, invest um, themselves in the in the in the climate recovery that much if they you know concerned about the day day to day uh, survival, or if you're talking to a small island developing states, for them the climate change has been an issue for um, you know decades now, and now that that COVID is just a, a blip, uh, you know, in their ongoing climate crisis. 
So I think that the conversation is a little bit nuanced. Thank you very much, uh, Elizabeth. And Angela, anything to add or contrast on anything? Maybe it's to build on Elizabeth's point about are we always uh, talking to and, and listening to the same people? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good point. And, and uh, this COVID crisis, I think, has, has shaken us out of um, the expectation that our issue is always going to be number one. You know, COVID has taken all of politicians' attention. And, and that's right. You know, we shouldn't, as in the environmental sector, be competing with public health. The reason we have net zero as a target is because we want to improve people's lives. We we worry about the consequences of climate change on people's health. We worry about the risk um, of an economic collapse we'll be exposed to if we don't solve the climate crisis. We worry about people's quality of life and, and well-being. So we should um, we should look at this COVID crisis. I think, as pe- everybody's saying here, as as an opportunity to um, show that we actually there's a better way of doing things. So I think the reason this build back better narrative has taken hold is because pe- things weren't good before covid you know we had heat waves in uh, europe in 2019 we had fires in australia and in the amazon the global student strikes uh, that sam mentioned you know were were kind of part of this um realization that we were already on a bad path so i think young people are really important in this um lockdown is having a huge impact on their education it's having an impact because they face another recession worse than the one in 2008. You know, what what generation has faced as many economic challenges as this generation coming now? Um, and they're bearing all of this to help protect their grandparents. And that needs to be paid back with a green recovery because that's what they have been asking for. You know, they need to know that we're not going to lurch from crisis to crisis. They want a good job in industries fit for the future. They want a healthy planet to live on. And we have to, we have to deliver that. So I think this COVID crisis has changed the question from before we were saying, you know, is the government going to invest at the scale we need and put the policy in place to address all the gaps that we knew were there? Now the question is, we absolutely have to invest because otherwise we risk a depression. The question is now, why would you do anything else apart from a green recovery? You know, you have to make the economy start again. This is the fastest growing sector. It's a place that investors can be sure of returns. It fits in with their business plan. So it's, I think it's really, why not? Why would you not do it this way? So one of the things that we're asking for at WWF is for the Treasury in the UK to commit to a resilience rule or a net zero rule, something that ensures the UK recovery actually reduces risks of health crises, economic crises in the future. How do we build back better? How do we have a recovery that stops us kind of lurching from crisis to crisis. Thank you very much. And I'm going to bring Sam into the conversation because he has something to say. But afterwards, don't let me forget to ask you for listeners like me who are not quite up to scratch what Build Back Better is. Um, but but Sam, if you want to come in. Sure. Um, well, I'll let maybe Angela return to the Build Back Better hashtag. Thank you. Which it is. A, it's a hashtag. It's just a really powerful phrase about our stated intention. And what I was going to say actually kind of relates to that. In the UK and across Europe and across businesses across the world, we now have, we set ourselves a long-term goal, which in 2008, we hadn't explicitly spelled out. So in the UK, we have a net zero target set in law. This is happening across the world at pace, albeit not fast enough, but it's happening. And the introduction of this long-term pathway, this long-term outcome that we need to achieve gives a clarity of focus, I think, that we didn't have to guide us or we didn't choose to kind of adopt uh, just as recently as 2008 uh, when the financial crisis happened. And we see that the the kind of bounce back from the financial crisis actually led in 2010 
to a record-breaking year in uh, global greenhouse gas emissions. What we need to do, and I think what all my colleagues on this uh, conversation are saying, is that we have to ensure that that return isn't a return to business as usual, because that would put us on record-breaking emissions pathways, but instead is one that is actually commensurate with that long-term goal that we've set ourselves, that's captured in the Paris Agreement, and that's translated into legislation at the, at the nation-state level. And that, that focus should give driving kind of purpose to how we make decisions, how we shape the stimulus packages that we're going to see. And of course, a huge part of that will be the role of renewable energy. Thank you. Um, Elizabeth, anything to add? Yeah, I just I just wanted to comment because it, it, Sam sounds like something very interesting because, uh, um, you know, when you contrast and compare with 2008, we are right now in the economic crisis and we're quite liquid, you know, from the financial viewpoint. So this is really an extraordinary opportunity to have this public policy input into how we recover so that we don't just, you know, fall back to, you know, the business as usual, but the governments have a really unique opportunity to step in and shape the policy so we can have the system change that is required for what we are talking about to be decarbonized in the, in, in the long term uh, for the climate purposes. So I just wanted to add that to, as, as Sam mentioned, the financial crisis of 2008. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for that. Angela, I'm going to come back to you, uh, not just for the Build Back Better uh, hashtag, but also to start to kick us off to the next uh, little bit of conversation. So we're already talking about looking into, into the future. Um, how can renewables help to design this new future, what's being referred to as the new normal? What would be some of the most encouraging scenarios in terms of both social and economic development, which might emerge in this uh, context? Mm. So I, I think Sam has covered the bill back better. Point Thank already. you. So, so I'm not going to I'm not going to repeat that. But yeah, to, to your question, um, for me, renewables is is quite um, symbolic and totemic in in this story. So I started my career in uh, a retail networks generation business back in the 1990s when renewables were just taking off. Uh, so renewables have kind of tracked my career on the environment, and it's incredibly important to show what's possible because I think in the 1990s people wouldn't believe where we are with renewables now. And they, in fact, they wouldn't not believe it. They denied it was possible. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, we're in this really uh, strange position now. Um, as Elizabeth just said, the economy has stopped, you know, and some environmentalists are celebrating that. But this is not a solution. We haven't solved anything. We could just go back to where we were. And it could, it could be worse because we'd be putting more kind of energy and government policy behind restarting the economy that we, we end up in a worse situation. So the green recovery for me is not about stopping doing things. It's about starting doing something different. So changing the way we work, the way we eat, the way we travel. And there's loads of things that have happened during this crisis that have given us clues to a different type of future that we um, we could see. And the fact that we have already done it in renewables, I think, makes that kind of cynical denial that it's not, it's not possible just very hollow. You know, we started in uh, the 80s and 90s with the first commercial wind farm. And now we have an industry that's nearly 40% of all generation um, in the UK. I mean, that is absolutely phenomenal. It's amazing. And we need to repeat that in other places. So your question, you know, what industries or big changes do we see? So I'm from WWF. So you'd expect me to talk about trees and nature. And there are some really exciting opportunities there um, in farming and flood defences. But actually, um, one of the things we're saying at WWF is you can't just pick one thing. You can't just pick your favorite thing. We need to move everything. All fronts need to move. This is a huge challenge to half emissions by 2030. And so I would say everything, 
but because I'm on this podcast and because we're talking about renewables, I would say one of the things that's really exciting is in the context of the rise of home working um, and young people struggling with housing costs. I think the rise of consumers and homes turning in, into producers and storage providers for the electricity grid is really exciting. It's one of the things that we know we need to do to make space on the grid for heat and for electric vehicles. And it requires huge investment in energy efficiency, in retrofitting, and it requires a more sophisticated two-way relationship between, between energy providers and customers. And that is exciting because it's the biggest source of jobs in the recovery. So those jobs are spread all over the country in the UK. We've got a report coming out this week, keeping it competitive. It shows that you can get over 90,000 jobs in building uh, low carbon infrastructure. And those are good jobs which are going to be driving the stimulus. So I think we want to talk about how we have got sort of ready-made plans to contribute to getting us out of the change, which actually is around completely changing industries and inventing new industries we've never heard of and, and knowing that that's possible for the UK. Thank you, Angela. So lots, lots of there, lots of uh, different scenarios of all sorts of aspects, of course, not just social and economic. I'm going to bring in uh, Marta and then Sam, I'll, I'll come back to you. Marta, what would be some of the most encouraging scenarios emerging in this context or how can renewables help to design this, this new normal, this future? Well, I think, as um, Angela was saying, the case for renewables is, is quite clear. It was quite clear before the pandemic, and I think that the strategic position of renewables hasn't changed. Well, we've seen over the last 10 years, and Angela was going further back, that we've seen how scenarios of very high penetration of renewables in the power system were not, nobody was um, you know, betting for that. And now they're a reality. We're also seeing how... Um, Energies are competing more in different areas, like uh, sustainable transport, so electric vehicles. We see that prosperity is only years away. Very, in very few number of years, we're going to see how electric vehicles are going to be just as expensive in terms of investment from, from internal combustion engines, also in heating and cooling. We have heat pumps, and all these technological progress and cost reductions are being sustained over time. So that renewables are more competitive. So now in these recovery packages, renewables are not asking for large pieces of the budget. We, we can compete. We see many places that generating with renewables might be cheaper than coal or gas. So we can, that has really changed since the last crisis in 2008. So we also see in, in most um, perspective analysis over 2050 and how to achieve climate targets. We see how the power sector and how the electrification with renewables is, is growing and taking larger pieces of, of share and actually making the whole system more efficient. And um, so at Iberdrola, what we're doing is uh, basically after these short-term measures to make sure that our um, supply was, was had the quality that our hospitals and the critical services needed, now we well, we're really determined with our strategy and we're trying to advance investments and uh, make sure we, we give that signal to the rest of the community, but also to our own suppliers and trying to, to show that we have projects ready to be built, that we can really contribute not only to the long term, but also have short connection now, which is something that, as Elizabeth was explaining, for policymakers right now, we have um, the finance together with the um, sustainable or climate policy people and so they need to find that balance. And I think that renewables is, is really a piece that can drive short-term 
projects, so short-term employment, short-term action, and also achieving long-term, long-term targets, and also fulfilling that idea of sustainable growth, sustainable employment. You know, the, the youth and coming generations are being now they're facing another downturn or another, you know, another event or crisis in their in their lives. You know, they, so they had 2008, and now they need to suffer this pandemic. And I think we need to leave those benefits standing there for the long term. It's not something that you do now, and then those benefits are lost in, in some years' time. But they're going to remain, they'll stay there. So I think it's also a good message to those people that are actually going to be suffering more. Thank you. Thank you, Marta. Uh, Sam, Uh, what's your uh, reply? <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, I just wanted to build on what Angela was saying and remind ourselves really, you know, Angela made a really powerful point that we have to kind of believe in the art of the possible. We look at what we've achieved and we should therefore have confidence in our ability to kind of make this transition. It's increasingly not a technological challenge, but one of politics and societal kind of adoption. And, you know, we've just come out in the UK of a whole month without any co uh, any electricity generated through coal whatsoever. Now, for the UK, that transition has happened in incredibly short space of time and is incredibly powerful in just demonstrating that this renewable energy transition is within reach and we can secure it. You know, I just want to reflect on the fact that, again, looking back to 2000, since 2008, the global kind of cost of renewables has reduced by approximately 90%. So the, the, the costs have come down enormously. And as a result, they're now in a place where they are able to deploy. They are, in many instances, the definition of shovel-ready projects, which politicians, governments are looking for in order to you know, inject investment into infrastructure projects with high-quality jobs and economic multipliers being enjoyed across, across the economy. I think one of the things that we could be looking for now is to stimulate the investment and R&D in those component parts of the renewable energy system that we need going forward. Um, and I'm thinking particularly around batteries as they become an important integral part of a high renewable energy system. So we need to ensure that we are catalyzing investment in the R&D and those technologies that we need alongside the renewable energy transition. My, my final point on this was just really to kind of pick up on Angela's point about the, the distributed nature of this transformation and how we're going from replacing large centralized uh, electricity generation um, with wind farms. Increasingly now we're going into and engaging with individuals in their communities and in their homes about how they, how they drive and how they heat their homes. And in that space, we already knew that there was a huge jobs and skills gap in order to decarbonize the UK's housing stock. That skills gap still exists and we're going to need to find ways to bring thousands of people back into employment with high quality, long-term sustainable jobs. So we do need to have skills, training, apprenticeship packages that match that demand uh, with the, uh, the the reality of what COVID is, is leaving behind. And I think the, the decarbonization of our housing stock, the rollout of renewable uh, heat uh, and the rollout of electric vehicle uh, infrastructure across the UK and across Europe and elsewhere is a huge opportunity for uh, catalyzing growth in jobs. Thank you, Sam. That's a, a, a range, a range of replies. Um, Elizabeth, I'm going to move us on to the next, uh, the next part, which is actually, I think this is where we're going anyway. We've already started to to talk about uh, policy, uh, about the need for politicians to be behind this. Um, but Elizabeth, again, if you need to pick up on anything that's been said, then then please do that in a second. So. 
yeah, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, uh, the, yeah, we know that climate change is a global problem, but it requires local action. So what needs to happen so that these regional measures can work alongside those taken at a wider level, at a global level? I suppose what I'm asking is, um, is global consensus possible? Elizabeth, what do you think? So, um, so I will absolutely, it is my duty to reflect on the second question, given that I work for International Renewable Energy Agency, and that I'm the yes. obvious <laughs> to accelerate deployment of renewables, but I will try to fold it. I mean, I'm, I'm mindful of the time, and I'm going to try to fold it in your question. And, you know, when I read this question, it says, is global consensus possible? Uh, my first reaction was, like, is it necessary? And I think this is something that uh, um, that, that we that, that we are seeing increasingly. My, uh, all of the colleagues mentioned that, that the issue of decentralization of the new players in the energy system, uh, of uh, decentralized uh, deployment and new actors. There now, you know, the energy used to be uh, you know a few people sitting around the table and writing the rules. I think um, for those of us who who have lived in the you know 20, 30 years ago, we were grown-ups. Uh, we we all remember, you know, waiting for the OPEC results to come out uh, with basic breath because, you know, this was like the biggest thing that, that ever happened. Now, I don't know how many people, I don't actually know when they have meetings because it's just not uh, not consequential anymore. And part of it is that it has, you know, there the are many levels to it. I don't want to oversimplify, but part of it is that there is a lot more participants in the energy system. And with the deployment of renewables, there's going to be growing more and more. So uh, we have a global consensus. We have two global consensus agreements. One is on Paris, uh, where we the world has agreed that, that, that the decarbonization is necessary and that energy is absolutely a critical part of it. And we have uh, Agenda 2030 on sustainable development. So these are the, the sort of the orientation directional agreements that exist and that we can uh, uh, follow as a, as a sort of compass uh, as we move forward. Uh, now we looked at um, y- y- for, and this is, I just want to emphasize this part of, uh, of sustainable development because we often talk about climate change, um, but you cannot separate it from sustainable development. And we have seen it now in, in the COVID crisis, you know, how the health crisis is, uh, um, is made worse with a lack of electricity because, or a lack of access to water where the decentralized solutions can bring a lot of uh, benefits and, uh, you know, across the economy. It's not only about the job creation, but it's also about reinventing development. Uh, we we released our um, uh, Global Renewables Outlook in April, and uh, um, we basically, I really looked at the deep decarbonization as well, in addition to 70% possibility for, for those who are following on climate, they will understand what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, uh, and we basically estimate that uh, that the energy trans- transition that is based on renewables, efficiency, uh, flexibility of a system, and decarbonization of end-use sectors like transport, the industry, and others uh, would result in additional hundred million jobs in the energy sector. So you know that's that's a huge number, and this is what we need to talk about right now. And these jobs are not abstract. The benefits are not abstract. We're not talking about air pollution. We're also not talking about decreasing in global GDP because of the, all the activities that would come along and the de- developmental uh, benefits that come through development of things. So I just want to make the final point on this, is, and, and it's a little bit linking to what Sam said, said uh, because 
this is not uh, a technology solution. This is not a policy solution. This is a combination of technology, policy, and market solutions. And they need to move in parallel. What we have seen in Europe, uh, for instance, in, in, in this crisis, is that everybody opted for renewables power because it was there, it was a lot cheaper, uh, and with reduced demand, it, it worked. But there were quite a few market issues in the process when the price went into negative because there was always supply and, and, and the system didn't know how to manage it. And this is nothing to do with technology. And this is just the market solutions that need to be worked out in parallel if we are to go uh, decarbonize way based on renewables. Thank you, Elizabeth, especially for uh, for that that uh, breadth and depth uh, of answer to the question. Uh, Angela, anything to to add to this? Uh, well, actually, uh, am I asking the right question? Is glo- uh, is global consensus possible? Well, is is it is it necessary? Uh, I I think I agree with Elizabeth. You know, we need to ask a different a different kind of question, but we are all adding up to a global problem. So whether we need consensus to all contribute to that global problem is um, the right question to ask, but we do need to make sure we are contributing. So I think my reflections were similar in that COVID has shown us um, that we're all linked. We're linked in the problems that we face in a pandemic. We're also linked in the solutions that we need to develop. So, you know, we we learnt from each other's lockdowns. Some of us learnt a bit better than others, so you might say. We also learn about how we're going to work together on vaccines. Um, those kind of lessons are the lessons we need to take with us into net zero. Some places are going to do things first and others will learn and follow. And there are going to be examples, particularly in terms of distributed systems, in public transport, in, in how we how we think about um, different types of farming and power systems, where we're going to learn from each other. It doesn't mean that we will all have to do the same thing. Um, different regions will do different things and um, they'll lead on lead on different aspects. So. I mean, my experience working in the east of England, which is a very big coastland um, going from Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex, where there's so many offshore wind farms, uh, the UK really became an expert in offshore wind and exported that expertise um, and is now uh, looking at how it can, um, you know, support developments in Mexico and Denmark, all over the world. And that is um, something that... um, one region can lead on and others can can benefit from. So I think those type of things types of things are going to happen. Um, one thing that I would want to mention in this context is is trade because I think it's an is an example of where you have that um, global to local connection, and it's something that I'm working on at WWF, and it's where you start to see where you can potentially go wrong with your net zero strategy. So there's no point reducing your emissions at home if you're raising them overseas. Uh, we're not actually in that bad a situation at the moment, but we're not doing as well as we think we are. So we are very proud in the UK that we've reduced our production emissions by 41% since 1990. And that's an amazing achievement. But our consumption emissions have only reduced by 15%. So at the same time as we've bared down on territorial emissions, we have been importing more from over, over overseas. And pushing policy that takes into account our global footprint is one of the things that we're working on. Because if we are going to decarbonize, but we've got biofuels, which are coming from the US, which are actually turning native forest into a carbon emitter, or we're buying our food from somewhere that's deforesting, or we're setting up bad trade deals, which don't align, align with the UK's environmental commitments, then you know that's those two things are going in the, in the wrong direction. Um, I think there's a really interesting opportunity here when we start looking at the whole life cycle of carbon. 
where renewables will start to determine where some industries are located. We could have a, you know, it's the kind of um, logic of building your cotton mill on a on a canal and on on rivers. If you've got renewables close by and people are interested in the life cycle carbon of a product, you want to be located where um, that renewable is available, renewable energy is available. I think there's going to be a really interesting sort of set of questions about who makes what where and how regions find their place. And renewables, I think, are going to be a big part of that. So, the, the, yeah, I can see how the question is incredibly complex. Um, and Sam or Marta, anything to, to answer, um, anything to add to the, to the debate? Yeah, I'll just add briefly. I, um, I think that for, the, for, for us as a, as a company, what we need is really to have that policy framework in place that gives stability and it gives the, let's say, religious uncertainties or, or gives the certainty that the objective is clear and that those investments are, are there to be deployed. I mean, we're speaking about uh, projects that are going to be operating for 25, 30 years. So, so really the framework is really important. I would say that with the Paris Agreement, the target was there. There was a consensus of where we need to go. I think that right now speeds are, are different. I think and that speeds is really what we need to, to increase that, accelerate that. So having those right policies, policies that find a framework that eliminate barriers that really are what's needed to allocate those resources. We have the finance, I think a lot has gone on, not only on technology, also on the financial sector. So we have now investors, the regulators, supervisors, they're a lot more aware of, of the climate risks that we all have ahead if, if we don't take action um, quickly and, and steadily. So that is also another positive sign that's out there. And I think that um, um, so. Some policies are really needed. I would also like to stress on, yeah, regarding sectors. It's true that on the electricity sector, we've had the technology and, and we've undergone all this, um, this technological, let's say, revolution or sustained cost reductions. We are aware also that each sector has its, its, um, probably its constraints and we should really address also those, um, those sectors and understand what, what they have, um, what they have ahead and how those are all interlinked and how those sectors can, can can help each other or opportunities that are there for, for sectors to do things in a different way. Thank you, Marta. Uh, Sam, before we move on to our final reflection, anything to say about this interplay of, between local, global sectors? Only that Elizabeth, Marta and Angela provided very powerful, comprehensive answers. All I would add is that nobody is protected or immune from the impacts of climate change. And there's an inevitability to there being eventually that common, whether you call it consensus or recognition of the importance of climate change. The important thing is that we move fast enough in order to have, uh, we don't wait until all the world is impacted upon climate change equally, that we've all recognized the urgency of the problem. But we respond now and we respond in a way that speaks to those points that Angela raised about collective effort, about sharing, uh, learning and building on the strengths that everybody has to bring to this. Thank you. Thank you. That's almost the final reflection. How great <laughs> wrapping it up, uh, <laughs> wrapping <laughs> it up for us. But I will, I will come back to you um, because uh, the, the final question is really about how can we use the current economic downturn to 
to rethink about what we've been doing. Uh, it's been very clear from this conversation that uh, uh, COVID has not taken the focus away from everything that was happening before, that there was a lot of stuff happening way before the pandemic. So um, maybe how can we use this, uh, this time to rethink about what we've been doing and think about what we should continue doing um, in order to build a new, greener mentality I'm going to go to uh, Elizabeth for, for, for the first final words. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. It was super interesting to listen to colleagues. I, I think, um, I think <laughs> the one, uh, what, what I personally find very um, uh, encouraging, if you wish, that we have this space, we, this, we have this gift amidst, amidst the strat- uh, tragedy that, that, that we all lived through and uh, so many lives lost and, uh, and, and economic downturn that is uh, really unpredictable. We don't know where it's going. We have this pause that we can use to to restart everything and do it differently. And uh, and it's it's really unexpected. And uh, we uh, should not forget that before all of this started, uh, we all knew that whatever was going on, it was way too slow. It was way too little. Uh, at Arena, we estimated that the investment in renewables only had to be sixfold larger to what they were before, before COVID. And, uh, and this is not to talk about the rest of the energy system, the carbonization of, uh, um, end use sectors and, uh, uh, and, uh, and the upgrade of the system and digital solutions and all of that that has to come as, as a one thing. So, so I think that, that, uh, you know, this gift of time that we have given and the pause, it's very catalytic, uh, in nature. And we need to really approach this as a system change and not to talk about to reduce it to shovel ready project, whatever it is. They're super important, but they have to be part of something a lot bigger. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Angela, have you got anything to, to add, any final words or anything about uh, taking this time to, to reflect about how we should move forwards? Yeah. Um, yes, thanks, Pilar. Um, um, what I'm going to say might sound a bit weird, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been quite good for environmentalists to be knocked off the top of the news spot by COVID because I think we spent a lot of time trying to constantly ramp environment to the top of the list. And that is not a way that we can achieve net zero by 2050. Between now and 2050, some other things are going to happen. Other things will go on and they will take centre stage. And we can't have an environment um, system that functions only when everybody's watching. It's the top of the news item. It's, you know, it's everybody's number one issue. That's, that's not sustainable. So it's about how we get to work in the background. Elizabeth's point, you know, how do we get to the scale of funding that we need and the the right policies we need so that this is happening even when nobody's paying attention that the green option is always the option that you choose net zero is always making sense whether somebody is sort of holding holding a sort of a, a camera in your face or not so i think this is already happening and that's quite good we need to obviously make it much more significant as part of this recovery businesses are asking for a green recovery sam mentioned the the 200 businesses that um sent a letter to the uk prime minister today and I think the thing that's happening is they see a big chunk of stimulus that might come to their sector or their region, and they want it to be useful for them in the short term and the long term. They, they see where their business is going, and they want that stimulus to be helping them. And I think Elizabeth also mentioned finance, or Marta mentioned finance, maybe. this We're working, uh, WWF are working with providers of debt, because they know if they're going to be providing debt to governments at this moment 
they are the ones who are going to be exposed if those um, governments go back to business as usual because that is not a way that they're going to be able to return return and pay that debt because that is not a not a long-term strategy for them so i think those are lessons that we have heard and learned the biggest one for me is about justice and about how this works for people i think we probably because of covid have now understood we need to go back to people and talk about about how this works for people who've lost jobs who have got health concerns i think that just transition is really going to be a bigger part of um of the recovery story than it might have been if we had just been talking about why technologies were cheaper and and why they were outcompeting other ones i think we're going to be much more connected to people and that's going to be i think make us much more successful in in delivering what we need to deliver for net zero thank you angela um, marta anything to add or a different perspective yeah no I'll, i'd agree with what angela and elizabeth have said i think that um that i mean this pandemic has shown that there is no economy without a healthy environment and all those services and and the benefits that it provides climate is a stressor to those um to those systems we have the we're not facing the largest green recovery or recovery packages that are going to be defined for for the recent history and and it's it's the opportunity is there to align those policies and i think to to place this green recovery and making sure that those stimulus packages don't just you know pass by and and let's say that we we choose right and we don't go into those stranded assets or investments that are going to be lost along the way and we we have a better and and more resilient um future there and and in this sense um well I think there's a duty for everyone to show that support so that, um, well, and it's uh, the UK examples we mentioned by, by Sam and Angela, there's, um, well, um, calls for action also at the European level. In Spain also, we've had uh, a very large, um, let's say, coalition there asking for the recovery. Thank you, Marta. And Sam, anything to add? Uh, just one final point, really. I think the... One of the many consequences of the pandemic is to show us how vulnerable we are um, and how poorly prepared we are for a risk that, while it wasn't predicted to take place in 2020, um, was up there on the risk registers um, of what we should be expecting or what to look out for. And I think what it does, or what it ought to do at least, is remind ourselves of our vulnerability to climate change we are already committed to significant temperature changes um the we have to mitigate those we have to do take every action to ensure that those impacts are lessened and we have to be sure that we're we're putting in place the steps now to reduce those impacts we are adapting where we can we're building resilience into our communities into our societies and we are we're investing now because we know that these long Uh, these long kind of tail risks, those risks that occur at the far end of a bell distribution curve are destructive and chronic and systematic, and we need to be better prepared for them. And we have huge amounts of information telling us the likely impacts of climate change. We can see them being played out on a yearly basis. We now need to be responding with far greater commitment, if you like, to the uh, to the inevitability of greater levels of climate change impact and protecting the most vulnerable who have done the least to kind of con- to to contribute to the climate change crisis. Thank you. Thank you very much Sam and thank you very much to 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 you four to the four guests today for a very 
Uh, quite deep, actually, uh, conversation and very broad. So thank you for all the different perspectives. Uh, some of the things that have stuck with me as well, we haven't forgotten about uh, climate change. Uh, technology and cost reduction is going to make renewables more competitive. So and uh, we can learn from each other globally. And at the same time, we need to see how our local actions can affect others. And and finally, we have to believe in the art of the possible. So listeners, we've come to the end of this We Love Renewables podcast. I would like to thank our guests for the contribution once again. So thank you, Marta Martinez. Thank you very much. Elizabeth Press. Thank you very much. Angela Francis. Thank you very much, Pilar. And Dr. Sam Gardner. Thank you. A big thank you to you all 